Good morning. This morning we are reading from Ephesians 1, 5 through 23. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, good morning, everybody. We are continuing our study of the book of Ephesians, starting with Paul's prayer in verse 15. Before we get to that, I wanted to point out something. Were you aware that Jesus had a favorite miracle to perform? In fact, all the evidence we have in the Gospels is that of the physical maladies that Jesus healed, there was one that he did more than the others. There was one that he did with greater fanfare around it than the others. There's one that the gospel writers draw more attention to than the others. It's opening the eyes of the blind. Now, this wasn't just Jesus. In fact, all the way leading up to Jesus' earthly life, there were prophecies that when the Messiah comes, one of the ways that you will know he is the Messiah is he will open the eyes of people who have been born blind. People who have never seen will open their eyes and see for the first time. That's how you'll know one of the signs that the Messiah is here because nobody can do that but by the power of God. So Jesus comes and he begins opening the eyes of the blind. In fact, he says at the beginning of his ministry this prophecy in Isaiah about all these people being freed and prisoners being brought into the light and eyes being opened. He said this prophecy is fulfilled today in your hearing. In the Gospel of Mark, especially, the book is organized around opening the eyes of the blind. There's two big healings of blind people in Mark, in chapter 8 and in chapter 10. And the whole book leads up to the first one and down from the second one. And the first one has given people a lot of trouble. And if you've been on a Bible reading plan through Mark, you have probably wondered this. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus comes and he sees a blind man and he goes and he begins to heal him. Now, the way he heals him is he spits on his eyes, okay? This would have been something interesting to see. He spits on his eyes, and he opens them, and something interesting happens. The blind man says, I can see, but it's like trees moving around. It's blurry. And so Jesus takes him by the hand again and opens his eyes again, and then he sees clearly for the first time. And if you've ever read that passage, and you're not alone, commentators from the history of the church until now have wondered, why do a two-stage miracle? Jesus clearly can just speak and raise people from the dead. 
It's not like he couldn't open his eyes. It's not that he was feeling a little weak that day, low blood sugar, and wasn't able to open his eyes. Why did he do a two-stage eye-opening miracle? Well, what most people think and what I think is because Jesus was giving his disciples a picture of the Christian life. When you come to Christ, your eyes are open, but you don't quite see everything clearly yet. In fact, from the time that you come to Christ until the time that you die and go to see him in glory, it's one long process of your eyes being open and things coming into focus the way they really are. See, what Paul prays in this passage is something that you don't hear many times in prayer circles today, but it's an amazing prayer for every Christian. If you look at our text this morning in verse 15, Paul says, For this reason, having heard of your faith, And your love for one another, knowing that you are walking with Christ, here's what I pray for you. I do not cease to give thanks, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And here's the prayer. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having light flood into the eyes of your heart so that you might No. We're going to talk about the things that he wants us to know, but you have to understand his prayer is just that you would see, that you would see clearly with your heart. Now, as I mentioned, uh, Paul, you don't hear this kind of thing in prayer circles very often. In fact, if you are in a prayer circle, there was an article several years ago written by John Acuff, if anybody remembers stuff Christians like. And he talks about the people that you meet in a prayer circle, six people you meet in a prayer circle. And I won't recap all of them, but everybody has heard of the almoster, who when you're in a prayer circle and somebody says, okay, this person's going to start and this person's going to end, and if you feel led, pray in the middle, right? Or sometimes we call it a popcorn prayer. And you've got that person that every time you're about to pray, they make that little sound with their mouth like they're about to, but then they don't. And then you just sit there and play chicken with each other through this whole thing. And it's like, they're about to pray, and then they don't. And then you're about to pray, and then finally you both bust in at the same time. But my favorite one is the shot blocker. And this is where somebody in the group prays for something. Like, you know, Lord, thank you for this new job, or thank you for this new relationship. And then someone close to them right afterwards prays, Lord, I pray that you would give them more wisdom to wait and know what it is that you have. I pray, Lord, that you would give them discernment to open their eyes and see what you really have for them. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would cancel out these prayer requests that have been prayed (laughs) so that you would answer my prayer. And I don't doubt that Paul was a shot blocker. We see the evidence of that in his letters. But what we do know is that Paul was the person who, in the middle of the prayer group, is praying for the maturity of the other people in the group. Right? You wouldn't dare do that today because it would sound all high and mighty like, oh Lord, I pray for the rest of these people to mature. Now we know from Paul's life that that was a prayer he actually prayed for himself. It's not an arrogant prayer, and in fact, we should be doing the same thing. If you lined up all of Paul's prayers in the New Testament, there are prayer requests like we typically pray for today, Lord, help so-and-so, heal so-and-so, give us an opportunity for missions and sharing the gospel. But more often than not, What Paul prays for in the New Testament is that God would mature his people. Help us to see you more clearly. Help us to grasp your love more fully. Help us to understand all that is available to us in your son, 
Jesus. Now that is a great prayer in a prayer circle. That's a great prayer every day when you're opening your Bible. Lord, before I pray for anything else, I pray that I would see you. I pray that I would come into contact with you. I pray that you would change me to be more like you are. That's more often than not what Paul is praying for is help us to be more like your son, Jesus. And the opening of Ephesians kind of gives us this rhythm of the Christian life. It opens with a list of blessings that we covered last week. Five blessings that are available to every person who's trusted in Christ. And then what Paul does is he prays that we would have God's help to be able to understand the blessings that we've been given. Right? The picture is that you have been blessed so lavishly in Christ that it's going to take God's own help for you to understand everything that he's given you. It is impossible for a human being on their own to comprehend what God has done in its wholeness. And so Paul is praying that we would have his help to understand it. See, here's what he prays for, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would see in a spirit of revelation and of wisdom, of revelation and of wisdom. And this lets us know what kind of sight we should be expecting in the Christian life. The first, I'll take revelation first, even though it's second in the list. Revelation, this is the same word for the book of Revelation, which is the word where we get apocalypse. And we think the word apocalypse means something in the future that's going to happen that's probably really bad and then really good. That's how we understand an apocalypse, like apocalypse now. We use this word to mean an impending doom. But that's not at all what this word means in the New Testament. In fact, the book of Revelation, or the apocalypse of John, is not about an impending doom. It is about something being revealed that was formerly hidden. Right? The word revelation, the word apocalypse that Paul uses here and that John uses there means, God, would you take the curtain away so that we could see what is presently there? It's been there the whole time. So in the book of Revelation, this is really what's happening. There is some future stuff, but there's some present stuff as well. This eternal city, Rome, that looks like it will last forever, is about to fall, John says. The revelation is the powers of the kingdoms of the world are about to become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. But he also shows that this lamb who was slain. In fact, when you get to the opening vision of this throne room, you expect a king. You expect somebody mighty. And all of a sudden, you see this slain, innocent lamb. But the revelation is the slain lamb is a roaring lion. Amen. The slain lamb is a conquering king. The point of what John is showing us is to reveal what is there what's truly there in the world that God has created. And so what Paul is praying for here is we need a spirit of revelation. We need a spirit to see things the way they really are, not just the way they appear to us. God, show us the way they really are. But we also need wisdom. And wisdom is different than knowledge or theology in the sense that wisdom is about putting what you know into practice. Right? Wisdom, if you read the book of Proverbs, isn't all that earth-shattering and what it tells you. It's, here's what you should do about it. Right? And this is really the point of all of the biblical witness. It's referred to as wisdom all the way through the Bible, even to the point where Jesus, Paul says, is the wisdom revealed from God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. In fact, he tells people in Romans, part of your life 
is not to be conformed to the world, right? Not to see the world the way it appears before you're in Christ, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice what the goal of the transformation of the mind is. Not that we would just be smarter, not that we would be filled with Bible facts, not that we would get all kinds of accolades and things for the things that we know about God. Your mind should be transformed so that you may discern what the will of God is in your life. The reason we want to know God more is so that we can do what God has designed us to do. Right, So revelation is unveiling what is there. God, show us the true reality of the things that we're experiencing. And second, give us wisdom that once we see them, we know what to do about it. We know how to live. We know how to walk in the calling that you've given us. Think about how radical this would have been for the people that Paul is writing to in Ephesus. So Paul says that this can only come by knowing him. If you look back at our passage In verse 17, he says that he may give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Here's something that is earth-shattering. Our ability to see the world, our ability to do what God has called us to do, is directly related to knowing him. The more you draw near to him, the better you see. The more you draw near to him, the better you're able to walk in the calling that God has put on your life. The more you know God in a relationship, the more you know about the world. Now, the people that Paul was writing to worshipped Artemis. We talked about this in Acts chapter 19 two weeks ago. They worshipped a God who you could live your whole life and get no indication that that God had anything to do with you. You go, you make a sacrifice, you don't hear anything from Artemis. You go and you participate in the guilds and you've never met Artemis. You have something terrible happen in your city and Artemis doesn't show up to do anything about it. And Paul all of a sudden arrives on the scene and he says, unlike Artemis, I'm talking about a God you can know personally, who will respond to you, who will reveal things to you, who will walk with you, and a Savior that walked around here for 33 years, lived died, was held up in public shame by the Roman Empire, rose from the dead, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and appeared to hundreds of people. If you doubt that, just go ask them. That's the kind of God I'm talking about. Not this kind of God, unresponsive God. I'm talking about a real, living, relational God. And my prayer for you is that you would know him so well that you would see the world through his eyes. So he goes on with this prayer and he says, okay, that being the case... What is it that you need to see? What is it that you need to see that is out there? And having the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know, he says, what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe? These are the things that you need to know because they are there. The question is, do you see them? Do you see these things? A couple of years ago, Laura and I were doing an escape room together, and I don't know if you've ever been in an escape room. They are really fun. They're awesome. They lock you in there. Not really. I think they used to actually lock you in there, and I think they got sued. But now you pretend like you're locked in there, and you have to discover all these clues to get out of the room in an hour. 
And usually it's fun to do this with a big group of people, but Laura and I love to do this, just the two of us. This will make or break your marriage if you do this just one-on-one together. But we love it, and we enjoy getting to do these rooms. And we did one a couple of years ago that was casino-themed. And so all the clues are casino thing, there's cards, there's chips, there's roulette wheels, and so you're trying to get all these things, and eventually you want to get a code to get out the door. And so we've been in there for about 45 minutes, we are on the last clue, and the way that this room worked, this is going to be a spoiler alert if you ever do this room, but the way it worked was there's this giant like connect four board on the wall, and through the entire 45 minutes that we've been in there, you're putting certain chips in this Connect 4 board, and it basically turns out that there's some code that we need, and Laura's in the other room ready to put it in, and I'm looking at this thing, and I'm not seeing anything. And I'm like, Laura, I think we did this wrong. I don't know. She's like, what does it say on the board? What is it? And I'm like, I have no idea. Well, I'm colorblind. <laughs> and these were red and green chips, that you had put into this board. But in order to get the code and put it in, you had to have one person in one room and another person in the other room to be able to relay the information back to this thing that's changing in the other room. So Laura runs into the room, sees the code, runs back to the other room, does all the steps. So I'm standing there literally just kind of hanging out, and Laura is sprinting back and forth against the clock. And, you know, they have cameras watching you in this place. And so I'm looking at the camera, I'm like, this is not a colorblind friendly game. We should get an extension. And the time ends up running out before we can get out. And Laura's looking at me like, are you kidding me right now? I'm like, this is not my fault. Okay, I didn't choose to be born without the cones and rods that I needed for escape rooms. And they didn't give us an extension afterwards either. They're like, it's, you know, do it at your own risk. And The funny thing about it is, when you step back from that, it's not that it wasn't there. It was there. Any person who is equipped to see it, that has regular eyes, can see it. But if you can't see it, there's nothing you can do about it. There is nothing you can change. There's no other route you can go. There's no way you could maybe feel it or logic your way to it. There's nothing you can do. Your eyes are not made to see it. It's there. It exists but you don't have access to it. And what Paul prays is, you now have eyes that can see. And these three things are there, whether you believe in them or not. So this is true for believers, unbelievers, people that live now, in the past, in the future. What you need to see is there. And now, if you've trusted in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you have eyes that can see it. And here's what he wants you to see. Number one, He wants you to see hope in every situation. He wants you to see hope in every place that you find yourself. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what the hope is that he has called you to. There has never been and never will be a situation in your life that is hopeless. There is never a situation you find yourself in that is so dark, so removed, so outside of God's plan for you that it is hopeless. Now, there are dark situations that we walk through, but all that does is remind us that in every circumstance, God has a calling on your life. And it's not necessarily dependent on where you are now. As he talked about in the first part of this chapter, some of our hope is that we know where we're going. And we know that when we get there, everything is going to make sense. And when we get there, God is going to wipe every tear from every eye and everything wrong, C.S. Lewis says, 
will come undone in the reign of the king. This is like if you've ever read the commentary by Matthew Henry, who writes great little Bible notes that are on Bible Gateway and these other uh, Bible sites. His father was courting a young lady who was in a much higher social rung in Victorian England than he was. And the girl works up the courage to bring him home to the family. And so he's wearing you know, his best three-piece suit, but he's still looking a little bit out of place to her parents. And after the meal and everything, her parents level with her and they say, do you even know where this guy is from? Do you know what kind of family he's from? And she says this, I don't know where I, he's from, but I know where he's going. And she married him. And their son was one of the great Bible theologians in England. And her confidence was not in what he was then. It was where he was going. I see the trajectory of his life, and he is worth joining forces with. Now, your life is the same way. Your life with Christ is not in every single moment the perfection of what God has planned for you in the future. And if you've been a Christian for more than about five minutes, you realize that not every experience of the Christian life adds up to what this hope will be one day. In fact, that's why we have hope. We have the assurance of the things that we cannot currently see. But that hope is there because it is his calling on your life. Look at the way that Paul words this in this verse. That you would know what is the hope to which he has called you. The hope of his calling on your life. See, this could have easily said the hope of your calling. The hope of your calling, the thing that you find inside yourself that really just clicks and that you're really running after, it's like a poor Richard's almanac, God helps those who help themselves kind of calling. If you find it and you pursue it, things will really turn out. But that's not what Paul's talking about at all. The hope of his calling on your life. Did you know that you have a calling from God? Not just a career, not just a vocation. We talk about calling like you've got to find the right occupation. He has a calling on your life to dispense blessings, to turn you into what you would look like without sin in your life, to bring you in conformity to his son. That is his calling for you. Do you see it? Paul prays that your eyes would be open to see in every circumstance God's calling for you. Now, secondly, he says, I don't just want you to see that. I want you to see your situation in light of eternity. And the way to do this, he says, is that you would understand the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Last week, in the beginning of chapter one, it's all about this inheritance. We talked about adoption in the ancient world. Adoption in the ancient world meant something very different than it means for us. What you would do if you were a person who had an estate or a position or you had money and you wanted to make sure that it was tied up, what you would do is go and find somebody in your extended family and adopt them as your son. Because then you would ensure that everything you have is going to go to a worthy heir. You have tied up, you have made sure that when you die, you are passing on your inheritance to somebody who's going to be able to use it. And if it's not your kids or if you don't have kids, you go find the most eligible person in your sphere, you adopt them as your heir. And what Paul is saying here would have struck their ears so oddly that in chapter 2, it's not that you were a part of God's extended family, it's that you were outside the family altogether, far from God, sinful, rebellious against him, and all of a sudden God said, you have a share of my inheritance. You have been adopted into my family. 
So what Paul wants you to see is wherever you started out your life, whatever family you came from, whatever family life you're accustomed to, you are now a part of God's family. And if you are a part of God's family, you are an heir to the kingdom of God. Now that's a hard thing to see. That's a hard thing to see. And we won't fully see that until we get to heaven. See, the picture here is like if you're taking a tour around heaven and you come to this warehouse where they're saying, these are all the blessings that God has given you. This is, take a look at these blessings. Paul is the guy that's like, where's everything else? Where's everything else? Because the picture of the inheritance God gives us in this passage throughout Ephesians is the unsearchable riches of God made available to you. The innumerable riches of his grace and his glory. He says in chapter 2 that part of the purpose you have been saved for is so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards you. Paul prays that you would see that, your inheritance in God. Now here's the last thing. He says, I pray that you would know the surpassing greatness of the power of God in your life. And this is where Paul does something interesting in the text. In verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power or the unfathomable depth of his might towards you who believe? And Paul's like, let me give you an example of this. Let me give you an example of what this is like. That power was shown when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not just in this age, but in the one to come and put all things under his feet. That's the kind of power I'm talking about. The immeasurable greatness of a power that takes a man from Nazareth who is fully God and fully man, but from worldly perspective is nameless and obscure and comes from nothing. In fact, his parents, when they come to dedicate him in the temple, are too poor to pay the regular dedication. So they take the two birds that are a provision for people who are poor, and they give those instead. The guy that comes from that kind of family, who is tried and executed as a criminal in the Roman Empire, who then God raised from the dead and made the king of kings and the lord of lords. The power that you would need to do that, he says, is the power that is available to everyone who believes. Now, this would have been especially powerful for Paul. See, Paul, we know from the book of Galatians, he had a physical malady in his life. Sometimes we talk about this with Paul's thorn in the flesh. And whether or not this is the thorn in the flesh or not, one thing we know about Paul is in the book of Galatians, he says, you know, I didn't even intend to come to Galatia. But we were traveling, he says in chapter 4, and because I was sick, because I had a physical malady, we stopped off and came to you and preached the gospel. And you all received us so well and with such big hearts, he says in verse 15 of chapter 4, that you would have torn out your own eyes for me so that I could see. Then at the end of Galatians, he says, you know this is my own handwriting, right? Because I'm using such big letters. He says, you know, when a scribe would write something, it would be all nice and neat. But you know that I've written this because of these giant, scrawling letters. See, what we can gather about Paul is he had some kind of degenerate eye condition. 
In fact, as you go from Galatians towards the end of his life, in Acts chapter 23, when he's on trial before the Sanhedrin, he curses a guy and then finds out that's the high priest. Now, Paul used to be a part of the Sanhedrin. He would have gone to Torah school with this guy. He knows these people, but he can't tell that it's the high priest. Why is that? Because he can't see. He's got bad eyesight. He can't tell who that person is. And so when he speaks against them, he realizes, oh, I've just accidentally spoken against the high priest. See, if you put the pieces together, what you realize is Paul's life is ironic in this sense. He prays that people's eyes would be gradually opened even here at the end of his life as his eyes are being gradually closed. See, when Paul becomes a Christian, if you remember in Acts chapter 9, something very curious happens to him. When Jesus knocks him off his horse and says, why are you persecuting me? He also strikes him blind. And in fact, he has to wander around for several days until he finds Ananias and he prays for him. And it says in Acts chapter 9 that something like scales fell off his eyes and he could see again. And for Paul, that began the process of being able to see more clearly each day until he saw Jesus face-to-face. And at the same time, it began a process of his physical eyes being darkened until he could see no more. Whether or not this is Paul's thorn in the flesh, this was something that God used so that Paul would no longer see the way he used to see. He would see with the eyes of his heart enlightened. And I'll end with just a few of the things that Paul learns to see in his life that I think are included in this prayer that we should pray for as well. See, Paul learned as his physical eyes were seeing less and less and the eyes of his heart were seeing more and more, he realized and he saw that the power of God turns weakness into strength. He says, God's power is actually made perfect through my weakness. I will boast in my weakness so that God will be made to look strong. He learned that God has the power to turn your sufferings into glory. That what looks like a terrible earthly circumstance might be the thing that if you look with the eyes of your heart, becomes glory after glory after glory of walking with God. He has the power to turn your temporary earthly life into an eternal full life. To be raised up with God and seated with him in the book of Philippians, he knows that his life is probably coming to an end and he says, but the only thing I'm concentrating on is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, that I might become like him in his death and therefore I will attain the resurrection from the dead. You can only see that with your heart. And so Paul teaches us that even in the situations where our earthly eyes are closing, even in situations that don't look quite like what we thought God would have for us, the eyes of the heart can see his hope, his inheritance, and the immeasurable power of God towards those who believe. Now, this morning, we're celebrating communion. And I want to tie this into communion because one of the things that we do is we come forward and we're going to listen to Mars play this song about Mephibosheth is we're reflecting on what God is doing in our life. In fact, one of the things that is an eyes of the heart aspect of communion is that this little mini meal that we take in these little cups is our sustenance, right? When you come to the table of God, one of the things that you're doing is saying, I renounce every other form of sustenance besides you. 
One of the things that you're doing when you come to the communion table is saying, no matter what we're going through now, this is the foretaste of the banquet feast that we will celebrate with God forever. See, when we come to the communion table, we are celebrating that it took the perfect Savior dying and being humiliated for us to have new life with our Father. So pray this morning as you come that even in this act that we do, the eyes of your heart would be opened to see the world the way God sees it, to be able to see in a way that reveals what is truly there. This is the table of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we are not perfect, but you are perfecting us. Father, and you will someday make us perfect when we come into your heavenly kingdom. Father, I pray this morning like Paul prayed that you would open our eyes to see, to see your grace in our life, to see your protection and your provision, to see the joy that we have in following Jesus. Father, I pray that as we come to the table this morning, you would nourish us, that you would keep us, that you would protect us. Father, that you would remind us of your son's death.